Hello, and welcome to Road to COP26, a Euromoney podcast. I'm Lucy Fitzgeorge Parker. I'm the editor for Sustainable Finance at Euromoney magazine, and I'm your host for this weekly series in which I'm using the upcoming climate conference in Glasgow in November as an opportunity to talk to some interesting people about key themes in sustainable finance. For the final episode in the series, I'm delighted to be joined by Daniel Clear. Until June this year, Daniel was Global Head of Sustainable Finance at HSBC, and he is now President of Arabesque, a sustainability-focused global asset management firm, and CEO of its SRA division, which provides cutting-edge data to the wider financial markets, as well as Arabesque's own portfolio managers. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Lucy, thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. Um, well, now, Daniel, the main topic I wanted to discuss with you today is banks' net zero commitments, which I know is something you have unique insight on and also very strong views on. Um, but before we get on to that, could I ask what prompted you to make the move from HSBC to Arabesque? I mean, I, I keep being told by bankers that data providers are the ones making money in ESG. Was, was that a factor or do you think data is a more exciting prospect than banking at the moment from a sustainability point of view? No, Lucy, thank you. Really, really good question and a nice start <laughs> into this conversation. So I mean, I've, I've spent the last decade at, at HSBC. I was first the, the global head of strategy and then really out of strategy moved into the sustainability area because for me, it was just very, very clear. Sustainability will reshape the financial system over the next few decades to come. There are only two big trends, digitization and sustainability that will reshape financial markets. And so I, I felt very privileged to really build this out at HSBC. I wrote my own job profile in 2017, created a business uh, which really, in the end, infiltrated every part of the firm, every region, every business. But it was also clear to me that um, the real way to unlock sustainability across the entire financial system is with better data and with better technology. And I think we all sit on panels all the time where we complain that everything could go faster if there was better data out there. And for me, it was just very clear that there will need to be a firm that helps the entire financial system to transform with better data, but also with the technology solutions to apply it. And um, that's why that's why I'm now over on the on the side of a of a, of a fintech essentially. Because Arabesque, I mean, that is, I said, cutting edge data. I mean, that is very much sort of part of your USP, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's really using sort of big data, AI, uh, all the new technologies to try to, I guess, both gather and process data. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We do two things. We, we provide data, um, ESG data across really the entire universe, both data that we collect with quite tedious manual processes, but then enriched with AI. But then the more interesting thing is actually how do you use that data, right? I think we'll be in, the, in a world very soon where the problem is not the lack of ESG data. The problem is having too much data, right? You get data from everywhere and actually creating consistency and then applying this into financial investment solutions, into financing solutions, into risk management solutions. That really is, is the key. And I think that's, that's, that's sort of our, our proposition. Okay, well, I'd love to hear more about ESG data because it's one of my favorite topics, but I did say that we talk about banks' net zero commitments today, so I guess we should get on to that. Now, obviously, we've seen a lot of announcements about this over the past year, particularly in April with the launch of the Net Zero Banking Alliance, which itself is part of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS, um, which was launched as part of the preparations for COP26. Now, you were very closely involved in HSBC's net zero announcement a year ago, which was one of the first in the industry. Why did you think it was important for HSBC or for, for banks more generally to make that commitment? So I think 
making a 2050 commitment for a bank and for the industry is is absolutely critical um, because it's like a constitution. Right? It sets the, the framework under which we operate. And we also all know when we set a 2050 target, we have to operate within the scientific boundaries. Right? And you can look at every big scenario. Essentially, it tells you that we have to halve carbon emissions every decade to reach net zero by 2050. And so that sets the, the big legal premise. Now the big challenge is how do you operationalize something that's 30 years out into the next three years, eight years, so I'm talking 2025, 2030. And I think that's now the really, really interesting challenge. So I think it's really critical that people set that longer term 2050 target. It's like setting the, the constitution, but then you need the, the current government treaty almost. And I think that's what everybody's working on now. Well, obviously, that is, uh, that is what everyone's working on. Clearly, this isn't going to be easy. I mean, where do you think the main challenges or pitfalls are for banks as they try and get started on this? Yeah, I think what, what banks have to do at this point in time is, is three things. The first is actually understand your baseline. Right? Very few people truly understand the carbon footprint of, of the portfolio. It's quite easy to think about oil and gas because there aren't that many companies out there in the world and it's fairly clear what, what the carbon emissions of that, of, of, of those companies is. Um, and you can go across all the different industry sectors. It gets a bit more complicated in the other sectors, but you can do this. But then you go into your residential mortgage portfolio, into commercial uh, real estate portfolio. You go into the, the broader mid-market and SME base. And at the moment, data there is is very, very scarce. So I think one of the big challenges, you actually have to create your baseline. And it's not always in the areas that is the most obvious and the most publicly debated, but actually the big footprint is in the mid-market, is in supply chains, is in essentially the, the real estate portfolio. The second is you then need to project the natural runway of that portfolio until 2050 and starting, let's say, with, with 2030. So you need to understand... If you don't intervene, what is most likely going to happen in a portfolio? Because regulators are doing things, because customers are obviously doing their own activities. And only once you have that, you can actually set a strategy, because what your strategy has to be is an intervention into the natural pathway. Uh, and that means changes in capital allocation, changing in lending policies, changing in customer engagement. And finally, I think the, the last resort is the use of negative emissions and, and offsets. Okay, well, several questions on that. I mean, one would be, you're saying is this means changing customer relationships, it means changing strategy. That's going to make for some uncomfortable trade-offs, isn't it? I mean, do you think that banks are, are ready for that yet? Well, I think that the interesting discussion here is, at the moment, everybody talks about transition. And transition is the right thing. Right? It means you essentially want to help every customer on that journey. But you also need to find a point when actually some companies are either not willing or not able to make that transition. If they're not willing to make the transition, essentially they go against your 2050 target. If they're not able to make a transition, essentially they create a financial risk. Right? They, they create a transition risk that you need to manage. And so you have an interesting combination here of a strategic challenge, actually a financial challenge, that may mean at some point some customers can no longer be part of that portfolio. And, and frankly, I don't think anybody has properly reached that point yet. Most financial institutions at the moment work on 
policy interventions on the, let's say, the, the, the most obvious areas. They're, they're red lines. Take the coal sector. I think coal is a red line. Palm oil is a red line. And finding the right side of that red line is almost, well, it's almost easy. But then you go into the next sectors, and I think there the discussions will not be black or white, green or brown. They will be a lot more nuanced and much harder to also explain to the public why some clients you will still lend to and some others you will you will start to reduce your exposure to. One question on that is, um, as people do start to maybe have to reduce exposure, maybe have to end relationships, I know I, I've been covering emerging markets for quite a while and there are concerns that this may lead to uh, firms in, in emerging markets or indeed whole markets in, in the case of some less developed markets being cut off from international finance. Do you think that is a risk? So there's definitely a risk here. And the risk comes in from different perspectives. The first one is companies in emerging markets are less experienced in managing capital markets. Disclosure is poorer. The, the level of ESG engagement is very weak. And so if you look at currently an asset manager that really wants to overemphasize ESG, they will always end up with a much larger holding in developed markets, just because data is better and therefore ESG ratings are better. When we then go more specifically to the element of climate, there I think the discussion is actually a different one. Producers in emerging markets will be the ones that will be producing for a much longer period, especially when we think of the Middle East and also some of the producers in Asia, just because of the economics of some of the, the energy production in these countries. So if you, if you focus particularly on oil and gas, there will be different timelines for different geographies. And I think it's very, very clear that some of the companies in emerging markets have a slightly longer runway. The same, I think, is true on energy generation. If you are operating in economies that are growing 10, 15% every year, you will have to find a different trajectory. And I think reading the, the latest IEA 2050 net zero scenario, that is well reflected there. I think um, developed geographies have to decarbonize at a much faster rate, but we have to see the, the, the curve change in developing markets. Mm. And so I think it's really, really important for, especially the, the large financial institutions in the world, that this is not a discussion that fits every geography in the same way but at the same time is honest enough that also means that emerging market um, geographies have to decarbonize within the next decade or have to see the, 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 the curve end in the next decade. Okay, great. Well, the other thing you mentioned, of course, is the question of carbon offsets and negative emissions. And this is clearly a very vexed question. Everyone is telling me that carbon markets is going to be the biggest topic that COP and it's very hard to see how some of these net zero commitments can be achieved without offsets. But then again, a lot of people also believe that offsets shouldn't be part of this. It should be about actual emissions reduction. How, how do you see all that playing out? Yeah, so I think people confuse two discussions here. One is the role of a carbon price. Um, and I think the carbon price, many of us are probably economists, a carbon price essentially prices an externality. And that has a huge role to play. So I think integrating a carbon price into your internal pricing mechanisms in a financial institution and obviously in the real economy is critical, either because regulators are finally going to agree a price or because you internally have to start to price this externality. Um, 
And many of the leading companies in the world are doing this. And with that, you start to shift capital allocation because a pricing signal actually makes a certain source of energy, a certain source of good more expensive. So that I think is, is critical. The other one is the use of offsets to essentially neutralize your carbon footprint. And I think here we have to be very, very careful because the world needs negative emissions to offset the ongoing positive emissions. So I think there is a big risk that, that the financial system, the real economy, and essentially the planet double count or triple count negative emissions because everybody will claim them. And we, we need them essentially as a negative emissions bottom line to remain untouched if we want to reach net zero. And for me, that is the big danger here is that, that everybody will start to, to claim some form of a negative emission that they have financed and that other people that have used in their production process and other people will need it to essentially just reach their national contributions. And that is the one where a clear rule book is really, really critical. So COP26 can either be a real success on that front because there is now a global rule book on carbon emissions and negative emissions, or we enter a world where there's almost an arms race of who can claim more and we don't achieve the actual climate targets. Okay, interesting. So do you think that there is any value in carbon offsets in the voluntary markets for banks or corporates that are looking to achieve net zero? I think that there's absolutely value in this, but it can't be the ingoing hypothesis. The ingoing hypothesis has to be a 50% reduction in carbon emissions in this decade and then every following decade. And negative emissions as a plug in, in sectors and areas where decarbonization is incredibly challenging or costly. Hmm. But we still know that long distance flights will be very, very hard to decarbonize, especially in this decade, and we will need offsets. There are certain industrial processes where decarbonization in steel and cement is incredibly costly, and for that we need offsets. Um, it can't be the answer for activities where we have a technology solution that is actually economically viable. Hmm. Obviously, one of the advantages of offsets, it can be particularly with the nature-based solutions, that this is a way of addressing the nature crisis as well as the climate crisis. I guess that does have some value. Oh, it has huge value. Um, I think very few people truly understand the connection between climate and biodiversity, which is, is a very, very strong connection. But in our thinking, in our models, in our public commitments, is almost treated like two different discussions. Mm. So I think one of the big jobs is, is for the financial service sector to understand that, that connectivity and also build that into some of the modeling. At the same time, it is sometimes oversimplified. Um, and we just started work on things like the TNFD, which is the, the nature version of the TCFD, so the climate disclosure um, approach. And it's a much more complicated debate to understand the quality of an offset, the quality of nature, and how it interplays with the carbon markets. Okay, well, coming back to the bank's net zero commitments, obviously, we had a few banks, including HSBC, that made their individual commitments fairly early on. And then in April, there were another 43 founder banks, I think, signed up to the Net Zero Banking Alliance. 
there does seem to be an increasing focus on coalitions in the market. And there seems to be quite a developing focus on achieving consensus on how to uh, achieve net zero in the banking sector. Do you think that is the right way to go? Or do you think there are some potential weaknesses in that approach? Do you think perhaps individual banks should be more ambitious? It's always a combination of both. You need leaders because leaders pull in others. Right? Look at the, the, the automotive industry. Would the entire global automotive industry push so hard for electrification if there wasn't Tesla? Uh, Tesla, who's now worth more than the entire global automotive sector together? I'm not so sure. So you need leaders, um, even if those leaders are sometimes a bit uncomfortable. But to really move the entire sector, you need a common language, especially, I think, in the financial services sector where there is and remains a lack of trust, especially with, with the broader stakeholder sector, the, the NGO sector, and also the, the, the media sector. And if you don't find a common language, you will always be accused of greenwashing. If you find a common language, you can actually start to compare, right? You can start to compare two statements of two banks and are they actually going in the right direction? At the moment, if you open the TCFD report of five banks, even five banks in the same geography with the same business model, you will not find a single KPI that's the same. And if you don't have comparable metrics and comparable KPIs and comparable language in that way, you will never be able to tell who's serious about net zero and who isn't. And therefore, I think the coalitions are really, really critical to build that level of trust and transparency and, and common terms so that the wider world is able to judge whether this is just another narrative or is true action. Okay, well, that's really interesting, firstly, because I didn't know that about the... TCFD and KPIs, that's that's quite incredible at this stage in the, in the process, I guess. But do you think that will improve in, in the near term? It has to. I mean, TCFD was very, very powerful at the start because it brought people into the, the, the process, right? It's a very, very qualitative approach to climate disclosure. And it meant that organizations actually had to think. You have to think about your strategy, your governance, your processes, your stress testing performance. But it also meant that it had very few quantitative comparable figures. And we all know if you really want to make things comparable, you need numbers more than words. And I think that's the stage where TCFD is, is in now. We're moving from the narratives to the numbers. And for that, you need people that actually agree what is the right number to to look at. Industry coalitions are always very helpful there. They also need scrutiny, right? They need engagement. They need outside views to make sure that it's not the, the least common denominator, which is the, the, the usual risk. But having said all of that, I think it is important to have coalitions in this space to actually align on the narrative. Do you think part of the reason banks are so keen on consensus is the fact that some of the early movers on net zero have attracted a lot of negative scrutiny from the media and other stakeholders. Do you think perhaps they now feel it's a bit risky to stick their heads over the parapet and that there's more safety in numbers? That that may well be, be true, but I, I still believe that, that most of the banks in this field that are making these commitments and making these statements actually want to lead. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. I mean, this is for banks 
probably the biggest growth opportunity that's out there, but also if they get it wrong, the biggest risk. And if you were a good bank, your balance sheet looks like the economy in 10 years from now rather than the economy 10 years ago. But you want to be ahead of the pack, right? You want to be the first one to spot risks. You want to be the first one to spot opportunities. And I think most of the leading financial institutions have now understood that this is this is a commercial opportunity and risk rather than just a marketing effort. But people are also very, very aware that if you don't deliver on the full package, you will be called out. And therefore, I think a lot of the, the scrutiny that is happening at the moment is important because institutions now understand that this is not just the business opportunity on one side of the equation. You need to be serious about the decarbonization on the other side of the of the balance sheet. And I think that is now where most people have landed and creating coalitions like the Net Zero Banking Alliance is one of those ways of actually defining what is a credible 2030, 2050 target? If you're a member of this, what, what do you have to com comply with? Okay, great. Well, we're running out of time, but uh, just one final question then. What are you expecting from COP26? Do you think there will be much progress, many big announcements there, or is it going to be more of a, I think somebody said more of a procedural COP? Well, I hope we don't have many, many more announcements because everybody already <laughs> made announcements, right? I think I, I, I always say that the biggest job now is to, to bring people together, um, and harmonize a very, very w wide ranging set of alliances and new frameworks and new commitments. We, we don't really have time for this. On the 1st of January 2022, nobody will care about commitments anymore. Everybody will say, now show me the money, show me progress. When institutions report next spring with the annual numbers, investors, other stakeholders will want to see what progress have you made. And therefore, I think having more and more commitments is, is great and it raises the bar and it obviously engages the wider public. But really, I think people now want to see evidence that we're making progress. And frankly, I think looking back at the Paris Agreement, the Paris Agreement was very, very important to bring the world together on a, on a common ground. But looking at the progress since the Paris Agreement, the results are quite poor. And therefore, I think finding a way at COP that actually puts some of these commitments into action and then doesn't need another COP in five years from now to measure progress, but actually allows us to measure progress on a quarterly basis like the financial markets would. I think that has to be the, the big goal for, for COP. Well, I think it is certainly going to be a very interesting COP and uh, let's hope for some positive outcomes. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of hope riding on this and, and after a couple of fairly difficult years, it would be great to see some positive news. So, so fingers crossed. But um, I, I really could ask a lot more questions, but I really will have to leave it there for today. But Daniel, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. It's been a pleasure as always talking to you. Lucy, thank you for having me. Speak soon. Thank you. Well, that's it for today and also for this series. Next week, we will no longer be on the road to COP26. It will be underway. And provided I don't get gazumped on my accommodation, I will be there in Glasgow. As part of Euromoney's coverage, I will be producing a daily podcast, again, hopefully talking to some interesting people on the ground about the conference and about climate finance more broadly. The series title is Euromoney at COP26, so please look out for that. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.